Hello, and welcome to Media Evil, a medieval pop culture podcast, where we talk about how medieval and medieval-inspired movies, TV, and books depict the medieval world. What did they get right? What did they get wrong? And what do they tell us about how modern people see the medieval past? I'm Sarah Ifchdecker, a medieval historian, and today I'm joined by the once great co-host, now in decline, Ollie Brady. Ollie, welcome. Yeah, what a way to be welcomed, Sarah. <laughs> Once great, now in decline, Ollie Brady. Yeah. Um, now, as a man who is... create thematic resonances, Ollie. A guy who's in his 40s, <laughs> who is well aware of his body breaking down, and Sarah can see in the background behind me where I've taken to turning my kitchen into a home gym um, to try and halt the decline. Um, yeah, so thanks. Thanks, Sarah, for reminding me of my impending mortality here. You cannot be conquered unless you're already in decline, Ollie. That's true. Remember that uh, all great nations are not conquered from without Sarah until they've rotted from within or whatever that quote is at the beginning. I'm oh, sure we'll discuss. We'll that. have a lot of discussion about that quote. So, uh, yeah, as we have perhaps hinted at, we are today going to be talking about the 2006 film Apocalypto. So, Ollie... Why don't you tell me uh, why it is that you wanted to talk about this movie and, in fact, insisted that I watch this movie? Okay, so there's a couple of things. Um, myself and Sarah, this podcast has been going on for, how long has it been going? Six years now? Feels. Yes. It must be something like that. It's, I think it's actually we might have just hit like the five year mark. Five year. I think we probably we definitely... just missed like the five year anniversary and I forgot to do anything. <laughs> Good. Well done, Sarah. I'm in decline. <laughs> I feel like both host. of us are in decline. Um, but uh, we've been doing this for years and we've known each other now for a long time. And Sarah, obviously, medieval historian, who knows all this stuff about history. And I like seeing dudes get killed in brutal fashion. So mm-hmm. turns out that Apocalypto, the 2006 movie, the movie that we're talking about, the directed by Mel Gibson uh, movie, is actually one of my favourite movies. And... It's one of those things where I don't tend to bring it up very often because not a lot of people have seen it. And it's one of the, it's a, so I go around and I signal boost um, 13 Wire all the time because 13 Wire has a bad reputation. Like it's, it, it, yeah. people would go around and like it was getting tons of one star reviews from people who I genuinely don't think I'd ever either watched it or B just wanted to focus on the inflated budget. Apocalypto has really good reviews. But it was just never seen. So it's not something you feel like you need to single, or signal boost or talk about all that often. But yeah, I genuinely love this movie. Um, it's also directed by Mel Gibson, a massive steaming piece of shit as a human being. One of the first movies we, in fact, the first the movie. The first movie. Ta- actually, sorry. The second movie we ever talked about, Sarah, because we did record that movie yes. on Black Death beforehand. But the the first um, official episode. Episode was, uh, was um, Braveheart. And I originally had mentioned i think i even mentioned apocalypto in the first episode of braveheart it's like do you know we should do apocalypto someday and i just genuinely love this movie and we can get over the fact that mel gives you a steam appeal of shit now for people listening i am getting vibes from my co-host here that she did not enjoy this movie as much as i have now this is not the kind of situation we're going to end up in an argument um, I fully understand why Sarah would not like this movie as much as me. but just, And I fully understand why somebody would... I, I fully understand why you would like this movie. Mm-hmm. No, I was going to say the other reason I brought it up is because I just... 
I'm aware that Napoleon is in the cinema at the minute. Uh-huh. And I feel like Sarah is about to give Ridley Scott, because I have seen the movie and she is not, and I feel like Ridley Scott's about to get another kicking soon. So I felt like I yep. would bring in a cushion <laughs> for poor Ridley so that Mel can take a bit of the abuse in the run-up to the episode of Napoleon. I feel like there's going to be just enough of a break before I record Napoleon that like this will be a distant memory and and uh, Ridley is going to really, really come in for it. But uh, that doesn't mean that Mel won't. Uh, and in fact, I will say... I did not see this movie when it came out. And the reason for that is absolutely that like the timing of this movie was it's, uh, you know, a couple mm-hmm. years after Passion of the Christ. It's very shortly after uh, Mel Gibson very overtly outed himself as a as an anti-Semite and misogynist. Right. So when Passion of the Christ came out, it was like, this seems anti-Semitic. And then, you know, he got drunk and overtly said a bunch of anti-Semitic things. So, right. So uh, I was like, not going to go and uh, and see this particular film on those grounds. Mm-hmm. So. And I, of course, uh, haven't found out that Mel Gibson was anti-Semitic. I've seen all of his movies in the <laughs> cinema since then. Uh, because the, no, obviously I'm joking. Just people listening, I'm joking. I have not seen a Mel Gibson movie in the cinema since... Um, Passion of the Christ, and I only saw Passion of the Christ because I was forced to, because I was teaching in a very Catholic school, and the entire school went. Um, (laughs) As opposed to my uh, Jewish high school, where the entire school uh, had lengthy conversations about how the Passion of the Christ was anti-Semitic, and definitely none of us saw it. So, we're talking about Apocalypto, Sarah, and as we mentioned, it's directed by Mel Gibson. Who is in Apocalypto? It stars Rudy Youngblood as Jaguar Paw. Uh, who this is, so this is our lead, uh, Delia Hernandez, as uh, his wife, who is allegedly named Seven. We will discuss whether that is actually a name that is ever used in the film. Uh, is it? <laughs> Might not be used to describe her at any stage, but they've definitely, there's a point where they're selling off the other women, where I'm sure somebody says Seven. I'm sure somebody says the word Seven at some point in the film. Is it used as her name? I don't know. Not necessarily. Uh, we also have Morris Bird Yellowhead as Flint Sky, uh, Raul Trujillo as Zero Wolf, and Gerardo Terracena as Middle Eye. And I uh, will say they do certainly seem to have made an effort to cast uh, an entirely and to cast entirely indigenous actors, including some I believe who kind of claim to be of uh, like who claim to be Mayan or who are who are there, who are Mayan. There are a couple of things about. Uh, the cast that I'd say number one all of these names are cool like literally every single one Great of them names. is cool and I'm just saying this as an Irish person and I don't want this to be any sort of othering thing but if you told me that there's a chance that I could change my name from Brady to Bird Yellowhead I would <clears> like <throat> Oliver Bird Yellowhead just sounds so especially when his first name is Morris like such a normal white guy name and then it's Morris Bird Yellowhead uh, I've never seen any of these people in anything else, with the exception of, of Raul, which is how I pronounce that, Sarah pronounces it properly. So Raul Trujillo, that's what I'm saying. Uh, and Sarah, how did you pronounce? You were like Raul. Raul Trujillo. Ah, oh, so much better. Um, so I he, speaking Spanish. He's in a ton of movies. 
and I most recently saw him. He plays the bad guy, um, the Red Beetle, I'm going to call him. He's probably got a name from the comics, Carapace or something like this, uh, in the Blue Beetle movie that came out there. This oh. Year. And I was like, oh, he's still making movies, still making action movies. And he looks incredible because I don't know what age he is in this movie. I'm guessing 40 plus. So this movie's yeah. 15, 16 years ago. He does not look like a man who's in his mid-50s. No, in, yep. Uh, Blue Beetle, he looks mm-hmm. do look good. Like good for um, him. He's in a bunch of other stuff that he's he's just a really good, really good actor, and he nice. comes across super intense in this. So um, all the rest of them, I'd never heard of uh, beforehand, and I don't think I've seen anything with them in since. But they're all incredible. Everybody, everybody is good. Everybody is very talented. I think it's an excellent cast. Um, yeah, the people whose names I wrote down and mentioned are the people who seem to have done more things, although I personally ha- don't happen to have seen them in anything else. Uh, there were a lot of people who seem to have, like, not done a ton otherwise that I was able to find. But, like, in general, I would say, like, overall, very talented, excellent cast. Mm. It's, guys, everybody listening knows this means that Sarah's going to throw this movie under the bus at some stage because she's like, yes, I acknowledge the quality and talented cast that are I in this movie. I am a great believer in giving credit where credit is due. And there are things about this movie that are good. Incredible, there are yes. ways that this is a successful film. There are also ways in which uh, this movie might be successful in terms of accomplishing its goals, but I might not agree with those goals. <laughs> it just feels like it feels like what I write when I'm grading term papers. <laughs> your your essay on uh, the invention of the aeroplane is good at achieving some of the goals of an essay, but yes. fails at others. I mean, this is an evaluative exercise, ultimately. So we should go into the movie, and I'm delighted I don't have to sing anymore. So, uh, girl, stick it away. Where we going with the enumeratio? Enumeratio. Yes, this is where we recap the film. And I'm going to start by quoting the, uh, is it called an epigraph if it's at the beginning of a film, or is that just if it's a book? I, I still think it's an epigraph. Okay, it is still in an epigraph. Not this, we'll, we'll just describe it as the scroll. Yeah. So the opening epigraph is, A great civilization is not conquered from without until it has destroyed itself from within. And I will discuss in more detail later that quote and where the quote comes from and what the implications are of that being the opening quote. But I did just want to mention it at the outset of our discussion because I think there are ways in which it sets the tone and instructs the viewer how they are meant to interpret some aspects of the film. Yeah, uh, I'm, I haven't read Sarah's notes because I like to be as surprised as, as the listeners. Um, I just looked down to see how much she's written and which section have the most in them because then I'm always like, oh. Gonna learn some good stuff today. What I would say about this quote is having watched the movie multiple times, is it's very rare you see a quote which cannot in any way, shape, or form be ascribed to the main characters of the movie. And right. like the main character um is Jaguar Paw. I know you pronounce it Jaguar, 
because you're fancier than I am. But Jaguar Paul. I'm actually um, never sure how to correctly pronounce the word Jaguar. Well, you pronounce it like a posh person, Sarah. You're like Jaguar. Um, but a Jaguar Paul. Uh, Paul, uh, he is they're just a little tribe just living in the jungle. Like, they are not a great civilization. So, obviously, the great civilization is either referring to the Mayans or it's referring to the Spanish conquistadors. That's right, guys. Spanish conquistadors show up in this movie about they uh, an hour and 55 minutes in and they are just on a boat and that's the end of it. And it's blew my mind the first time I watched this movie. And still to this day, it's like... Oh, yeah. Forgot the conquistadors are in this. Right. Right. So, we, uh, and we are also informed, uh, and this then also to some extent kind of signals to the viewer that the conquistadors might show up, is that we are informed also at the beginning that this takes place in the Yucatan in 1502. Mm Mm-hmm. So we have this uh, this group of hunters, and I will say so, the raiders definitively, I think, are supposed to be Mayans. It's uh, unclear if the, like, exactly what the kind of breakdown is of also the, uh, these, like, tribesmen are also supposed to be Mayans. Certainly some of the uh, things that I read about this film by people who know more about this area than I do seem to think they're all supposed to be Mayans, but different groups from within, like, the Mayans. So, whatever. Yeah, um, Mayans from ambiguous. the capital and Mayans from District 12. That's right. What with. Yes, yes, exactly. We both just watched the uh, the Hunger Games prequel. The Hunger Games movie, yep. God, about, man, how it's, no... about how it's so hard to be a white man in Panem. Um... It's so tragic how he just flipped <laughs> at the end and tried to shoot her because he found a gun. God. Oh, weird. Anyway. <laughs> what a dick. So... <laughs> We have this uh, this group of hunters, and they seem to be part of this kind of like hunter gatherer community, which I'll discuss later. And uh, this group of hunter gatherers uh, is, uh, you know, they're out. They uh, they kill a taper, poor taper. I was very sad. Um, and uh, they seem also um, very engaged at this point. Uh, they're they're kind of biggest. Uh, Joy for some and sorrow for some others seems to be that they are uh, deeply engaged in mocking the fertility or lack thereof of one of their uh, one of their own. Uh, and what did you say this character's name, in fact, was? His, his name Blunted. Yes, uh, so, Blunted is yeah. uh, not able to have children. He uh, he and his wife have been trying for some time with no success. His- his wife, Skyflower. A name that is not ever mentioned in the film. And... Well, how did I know what it was, Sarah? I'm just wondering, like... The credits. Hmm. Damn it. <laughs> credits uh-huh. are in the movie. Doesn't count. We've discussed this. Does not count. Uh, I know. We discussed it about the 13th Warrior. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Does not count. So, that is a name. Not a named woman. And... Uh, they uh, they give him uh, taper balls to eat, telling him that this will help his fertility. And then after he has eaten them, they start making fun of him. Uh, they also give him these like leaves for him to rub on his dick, which it turns out just uh, will be an irritant. Essentially, <laughs> will we'll basically get to- they give they give him uh, poison ivy to rub on. Yeah, his basically. Yeah. So uh, basically, like. 
their their main concern at this point seems to be being a dick to this guy who can't have kids. Um, yeah. I was thinking about this, like, even as you're watching it, I imagine that would actually be a big thing in a small village in, in the jungle like that, that if you get married, part of your duties to the tribe is probably to have children. So it's just the fact that they're all treating this like the biggest joke in the world and that, like, I genuinely felt sorry for this guy. I was like, oh, my God. Yeah. This has also, got to be terrible. Like, he gets back and, like, his his wife is seems fine. I mean, she doesn't really have a personality, but she's, you know, not obnoxious. Skyflower is a lovely woman who's really well developed as a movie character, Sarah. I'm not sure what you're talking about. She's very well developed. Um, oh, my God. As a character? Oh, mm, I don't know about that one. Um... So he gets back and like his mother-in-law just literally like harangues him the second she sees him and calls him useless and then like sits outside their tent yelling at them to have sex. And like, and and she is just like awful. And like, you just have like, you know, I mean, Mel Gibson obviously thinks women are either sex objects or like real bitches. So... (laughs) Look, like you. It's you, true. It's either true. either your either your sugar tits, or you like stick around for long enough that your tits aren't made of sugar anymore, and then you just suck. Oh my god! Hey, um, yeah, she. What I liked about this is, um, and again, I I'm not saying that I find this funny, but as a divorce man, um, that it's it's nice to see that back in the Mayan times in 1502 when this movie is set people still had mother-in-law jokes like that's effectively what this is this is this is uh it's a comedy bit from the uh what, what do you call the, the 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 um borscht belt or whatever it was right like it's it's a jewish comedian bit from the 50s like that's what we're dealing with here right and i just think it, it genuinely it tickles me the way that the act them i the first time i saw this movie i thought that we were going to end up with that character ending himself. Like, I didn't know that it was going to be a Mayan attack. I was like, this is going to work down and it's going to be about mental health or something like this. And I was like, nope. <laughs> nope, luckily if the Mayans. Uh, one thing we will just say is, uh, earlier on, when they had captured the taper in a really good action scene, now, I'll talk a bit more about the action scenes later on at the end of the movie when we're, we're talking about our Esther Matios. But um, they meet another group of tribesmen passing through. And in fact, an entire village of tribespeople passing through, they have um, a kind of ominous interaction with them where the other tribe says, our village was destroyed, it was decimated, and we're going to try and find somewhere new. And I'm not sure if they're implying that it was because of the Mayans or if they're the village that, you know, the one that later on we see with the the disease that's come through. Right. So I'm yeah. not sure whether or not I it's was the assuming it was the Mayans because there was somebody who looked like she would like there were some people who looked like who I could have sworn looked like they had like dried blood on them. That's what I so was So I was assuming well. an attack as opposed to illness. Yeah. And it would also make sense because they're moving from the, oh, sorry, the reason that I, I wouldn't think it's necessarily this is they get captured before Right. Uh, our main characters, which would mean that the Mayans were coming from that side. So they were heading in the direction of the Mayans. Right. Um, because they were already captured. So it made me think, well, they're moving away from something else. But then also what popped into my head is perhaps they came into contact with the conquistadors. Oh, maybe. Up the coast. And they had already been destroyed by mm. the group of Spanish settlers. 
So, yeah, that's can, true. So there's again, options. It is, it is ambiguous, but certainly like they are refugees of some kind and uh, are you know recovering from something and very few people have survived and are not doing great. The next morning, their own village gets attacked by these uh, these Mayan raiders. So, okay, things that happen during this. Um, so our uh, we have Jaguar Pa, who is our main character. Uh, he has Jag is so fancy, there. Jaguar Pa. Okay, how am I supposed to say it? No, it, I'm, sorry, I'm just saying it is really fancy the way you say that. I, it, like, Jaguar Paw. So it sounds like one full word. And I'm like, Jaguar Paw. Like, it's, it's, it, you are probably saying it correctly. So don't, don't listen to me. I just think it's funny. So Jaguar Paw. Oh, yeah. There we go. <laughs> Jaguar Paw. He, uh, he, unlike Blunted, has been blessed with children. Uh, we get the like charming scene of him with his wife, who is named Seven in the credits. I seven. don't think that yeah, is ever seven. stated in the film. Again, seven and Turtles Run. Turtles Run, his son, is definitely named in the film. I don't think his wife is, but his son is. Mm -hmm. um, the wife is also pregnant. Uh, we've got some like charming family scenes. Um, they actually are really well done. They, they seem like a nice group that love each other and care for they each other. They do. I wouldn't say his wife yeah. has a personality, but they all seem to like each other very much. Why are you you're so harsh on this poor woman? I'm not being harsh on the woman, Ollie. I'm being harsh on decisions of male filmmakers that literally the only thing we know about this woman is that she likes her husband and her son. Like, cool, yeah. I guess. That's all we know about her. I think she's cool, yes. So Jaguar, Pa, in order to rescue them, uh, throws them in a pit. Yeah, so they get attacked by the Mayans and he realizes it's pretty bad really quickly. Obviously, his child, so um, Turtles Run is three. Like, I'm going to guess he's four, three, maybe, yeah. maybe four. He's very small anyway. And his we're talking nearly full-term pregnant wife seven um because oh maybe she's called that because she's seven months no sarah no she's nine <laughs> she just got they just keep changing her name every every month pregnant she gets no stop she's seven because of something that happened when she was a child or something i don't know um which they don't she, tell us said, in the film no nor is it relevant can, can to the film. It. it's totally relevant to the movie it's a lovely name it for the character I don't know why, right? But he he decides the best thing I can do is hide them. So while the battle is going on between his villagers and the Mayans, the Mayans who seem to have better weapons and just be bigger, like I, I get that they're all versions of the Mayans, but the city folks seem to be better fed and larger in general than, than his characters with the exception of Blunted. And they're getting effed up. So he's hiding his wife because, you know, he wants to go. And then he runs back in to try and help his dad. Uh, and yeah, so basically there's a lot of murder going on in the village. Yeah, we watch his dad get pretty brutally killed. Uh, we also watch, uh, so Blunted did not go and, uh, dr and drop his wife off in a pit. So we watch her get uh, brutally sexually assaulted and probably murdered. Mm-hmm. So no, that it, it happens off screen, 
but it's heavily implied. Like we're not. We hear her screaming. Yes, that's like there's nothing visually graphic, but it's very clear what's happening. So at least the movie took the you know didn't go that route in in what it was doing. Um, that not that that's necessarily a good thing, but it's it. I appreciate when you're not forced to watch something. We certainly right. We don't need to watch it, but it is undoubtedly you know uh, yeah clear. One hundred percent. It's implied that that's what's happening. his father getting killed. So, um, zero. So zero wolf is the leader of the Mayans, and he's big, big dude. Uh, and he's got this sadistic friend called Middle Eye, who's a badin. Like that's the only way to describe him. He's a bad guy, mm-hmm. right? He's clearly riled up, and he's just loving and mad for the killing. And uh, he is attacking uh, Flint Sky, and he's about to kill him. And then in comes Jaguarpaw. Uh, knocks him over, has a fight, is about to kill uh, Middle Eye, the sadistic guy, and then in walks Zero Wolf, and he's like, no, 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 sorry, son, you're you're captured now. And then this is, again, one of the things that I like about the movie is that the reason Flint Sky gets killed is because Jaguarpaw opens his mouth and says, sorry, father. Right. And then that alerts uh, Middle Eye, the crazy one, to the fact that that's his dad and he wants revenge because he was trying to kill Jaguarpaw and Zero Wolf stopped him and he slits Flint Sky's throat in front of him and just lets him die just in front of him. And I said, it's one of those things where if he'd have kept his mouth shut, his dad would have lived a little bit longer. But so effectively, you can see why he would feel responsible for it. Right. Yes. And so uh, certainly, right, we've got we've got a lot of of extreme brutality. And, uh, you know, we have both. Uh, and then, we, you know, we have all these people, right? And we have both our uh, our Mayans who are our heroes and our Mayans who are our villains. So the uh, oh, and uh, and before the raiders leave with their captives, they um, one of them goes and finds the whole uh, Seven and Turtles Run manage to like kind of slip into a crevice, and so they don't actually like see them. And I think they kind of try to shoot at them, but you know aren't able to get them. But basically, figuring I'm pretty sure somebody's down there, they see that there's like a rope tied to something, and uh, just kind of knock that in. So they are now trapped in the hole, and they will remain trapped in the hole for basically the rest of the movie. Yeah. So they remain. They're going to remain trapped in the hole. Um, it's nice when you just he, like when women would just like stay where you put them in holes. <laughs> so, it's the least charitable way to say this, but um, yeah. So she's down in the hole, uh, like the lyrics to the song at the beginning of the wire. But she's down in that hole with her kid. Uh, she's hiding this Mayan warrior. He's clearly aware there's something down there because the little boy makes a noise. He can't see them, but he throws a couple of things down. He ends up cutting the little son's foot and we'll talk about the scene involving ants in a few minutes um but then he'd like yeah so these people were probably going to try and climb out so he takes the rope off he's not 100 percent sure there are people down there but just on the off chance he throws the rope in so they're now trapped down in the thing and then the raiders take the captives the men and the women are tied to um big long bamboo style sticks and they are forced to trudge through the forest towards the mayan city yeah, so the next kind of big arc of the film is their actual journey, which is uh, which is pretty miserable. Conditions are obviously very unpleasant. At some point, there's somebody along the way who is not quite able to keep up, and uh, I think it's Middle Eye again, right? Who ends up like 
pretty brutally like killing him. Yeah, he kills one of the um, one one of the um, villagers uh, had been stabbed through the stomach, and clearly he's badly injured. And Middle Eye taunts him by drinking water in front of him and keeps telling him he's going to do stuff to him. And then eventually, when they're going across a very high cliff, um, he starts to collapse. And Jagger Paul wants to help him up. And Middle Ice is like, no, nah, he's no good to us. And he just cuts him loose and lets him fall off the cliff to his death. Yeah. So we uh, so we have that, right? So uh, emphasis on the horrific conditions. They go past a couple of uh, villages that are filled with, with uh, people who seem to be the victims of various sorts of plagues, uh, uh, including there is a little girl and uh, you see that all of like she's with her she's with her mother and her mother has clearly died of some sort of disease and the girl also looks like she's probably infected, and she uh, prophecies um, that their that their world will come to an end and lists all of these omens, um, including like an uh, you know including like that like you know the the sky will be blotted out by darkness or something like that and uh like some stuff about it and like the man who stands behind the jaguar and like all sorts of omens yeah. dire omens so she says that the jaguar the 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 man jaguar yes. would would seal your doom um i think uh, and this is linking back to the conquistadors showing up I think the way that they have shown the dead bodies in the village that it's implied it's smallpox because they definitely have the pox that you would associate with it. Um, and it looks it looks like, a, it, so to put things into context, it looks like a really, really, really bad outbreak of chicken pox, but in a way, way worse for them. So I think that's what they're implying is that this is leading again to the whole destruction and brought by the conquistadors. But it's sort of very messy because like chronologically speaking, because they're Mm -hmm. implying that like, this is where, when the conquistadors are first arriving in this particular region, right? So they've been other places and those places have been ravaged by disease, but I don't think that the disease like beat the conquistadors to the Yucatan particularly. No, and that's like so. Uh, there's a lot of things that are chronologically very messy yeah. in this film, and that's why I of think they just fired it in and have said, "Here we go." Like for example, even with it being 1502, uh, I'm gonna we're gonna talk about it later on. There's a there's a thing involving um, there's a major plot point, or we'll say a plot. Uh, there's a major plot point involving a solar eclipse. Once they've established that the movie is 1502, there was no solar eclipse in the Yucatan in 1502. <laughs> we can trace back, like science can tell you exactly when. Right. A full solar eclipse would have occurred in that area, in that area and it didn't occur in 1502. Right. So stuff like that is just putting it in. 1524 is when you would have had one. But, right. you know, that's 22 years later. And in 1524, instead of the Yucatan Peninsula, it's pretty much like, I'm trying to think where the conquistadors would have been, I think, probably Guatemala. So you're they're much further down in right. Central America at that stage. Right. So, and as I said, and I don't think so. I don't think there would have been smallpox in this particular area at this stage, quite as of yet. So, yeah, there, there, everything is as I said, kind of chronologically a bit messy. And uh, yeah, we'll have more on that as we go. So, uh, they uh, they bring them into now the city, um, and as they are bringing them into the city, people start like 
haphazardly painting them blue. And then they walk by a nice mural and the mural has pictures of people being sacrificed. And so, you know, clearly that's the direction that things are going. And Mm -hmm. uh, then we have some uh, pretty horrific and brutal scenes of human sacrifice. Um, So there's this kind of big pyramid. The captives are led up to the pyramid and uh, laid down upon an altar. Their heart is removed and then they're and you uh, see a good, good, solid view of that removed heart. And then the head is chopped off and we see like the head and the body tumbling on down the pyramid. I, I have to say uh, for people who are listening to this, you've never seen the movie. If you're planning on watching this, uh, this is intense. Like this, there's no way to describe it other yeah. than this is like you. Ha- if you've watched a Saw movie, You've seen less intensive gore than yeah. there are there are in certain scenes in this movie, and it's it's because it's not played for titillation. I don't think I I appreciate it more. I'm not a big fan of some movies. I'm not a big fan of torture porn or anything like that. Like, but in this, because of the type of movie it is, and maybe it's just because I like the movie overall, I'm more accepting of it. Although 100, I could have done without it. They could have been yeah. cut away. Um, but yeah, it's shown in... I mean, those knives are sharp. Yes. Uh, and you see exactly what a sharp knife will do to a human body in this movie. Yeah, so it's pretty brutal. Um, and yeah, it's it's certainly, I would say, like more, more look at these assholes than it is torture porn. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and I'll have some discussion about that dynamic as well. But yeah, but it is certainly not played for titillation. It is like certainly horrific so jaguar paw is uh insisting that you know he's he's gonna get out of it um and as it turns out uh he does which you know you can also guess because he's our main character and there's still at this point like an hour <laughs> left in the movie yeah. um there's a couple of things about this he's with blunted um so blunted had survived the attack as well he was uh captured and Blunted had a scene the night before where oh, he predicted yes. his own death and he's also talking about how his wife was dragged away into the hut and sexually assaulted but her scream stopped way before the men came out and it's like did she give in did she stop fighting etc and he's like really worried about this and you know will she get into heaven because you know god won't care the sky god or whatever he refers to it as won't care if um she was being held down or whatever, like she should have fought until the end, this sort of stuff. It's very, I'll be honest with you, I think that's the most distasteful part of the movie. It's really um, gross. I don't, it's really gross. I don't understand why it's there, especially when it finishes up with him declaring how much he loves his wife and that when he gets to the afterlife, even if he gets into heaven, if she's not there, he'll go to their equivalent of hell to spend it with her. And you're like, but, so why do you need to have like harped yeah. on her like, quote like failure of chastity while she was being sexually assaulted like especially yeah. especially also like to be really brutal about all of this and acknowledge realities like it is also by the way a very real possibility that like she stopped screaming because they knocked her out yeah knocked her out like, or killed her or and killed just her finished and... up what they were doing like yeah um, like... we're not we're not talking with the nicest people in the world here uh what's also interesting is the other men from the village who've been picking on this whole time are they're the ones who are assuring him that she thought you know she thought she would like what are you talking about like stop being a basically stop being an asshole and 
you're, again, you're sitting watching it going, what is what is the point of this? Like, it genuinely yeah. is just a scene which doesn't need to be cut. Like, if, if they were going to cut anything in this movie, that's 40 seconds, 45 seconds. We definitely could have cut that. We really didn't which, need it. It was really unpleasant. It makes this person look really unpleasant. And, yeah. And up until this point, he's been comic relief. He's been the, the friendly, yeah. happy guy. And even after that scene, he's back to being that. Like when they're going to bring yeah. um, Jaguar Po up onto the altar for sacrifice, he's the one who's like, I will see you in the next life, brother. And it was nice knowing you and this sort of stuff. And you're like, all right, so we're back to nice guy. Night before we have... I'm going to be dying tomorrow and no matter what happens, I'm going to be dying tomorrow. And, uh, you know, my wife gave in. Like, he's like come on. Like, does be at least semi-consistent with what you're doing. We can't find this guy friendly and nice and have that scene as well. Like, it doesn't... I mean, and this is where I feel like it comes out in this movie, right, that, like, Mel Gibson hates women. Is that I think for Mel Gibson, a sympathetic moment is, like, a man, like, worrying that his wife was, like, quote unfaithful to him in that she apparently enjoyed being sexually assaulted whereas like a decent person who didn't hate women women would like write a sympathetic character as being like i'm so like sad for my wife i hope that like she's still alive even like what happens like because you you technically don't know like I don't, or like, you know, or just having the like, I, you know, hope I'll see my wife, my like wife in the next world. Like you could have just had that if you wanted to have like the like reminder. And mm-hmm. as I said, it kind of strikes me as like reflective of how Mel feels about women. But yeah. And yeah. there, there are times when myself and Sarah covering a movie like this and Sarah, um, I'm trying to think of the best way to describe this but it doesn't make me sound like an asshole Sarah sounds like she's going in harder on a scene or a director or an actor than I am and I just want everyone to understand that uh, I am 100% in agreement with Sarah on this this particular point Uh, yeah that's how that scene reads it's like this this guy is about to die but he's mostly concerned about whether or not his wife cheated on him by being raped like and yeah. that is what that scene is saying like it's yeah. not there's, there's no other way to interpret it. it's not like oh this is the least charitable way to interpret it and i will talk to say i don't about think there is another way them. to interpret it yeah. no that's what i'm saying it's it's not the least charitable. it is the way like when we talk about down in the hole later on I think that that is meant to be um, a powerful scene of how uh, Seven is down there with the child and she fights the entire time to make sure that her child is safe and that she's safe and that I like it's implied that yes she needs to be saved at the end but she was not just sitting down there and allowing herself to die she was fighting the entire time to get out and escape but I can also see where Sarah can go, oh, well, you know, women should stay down in the hole we put them in, right? I get that. But this scene in particular is not that. Even right. even when they get to the Mayan village, the men are going up for sacrifice. The women aren't deemed necessary for sacrifice. They're going into slavery. They're getting sold. Right. And, and we actually see that the mother-in-law, they try to sell her and nobody wants her. So um, they let her free. Yeah. And which also I'm just like, it feels so weirdly gratuitous that it really feels like they need to kind of emphasize at that point, 
nobody wants to fuck this woman really just felt like it really felt like the scene, even though she gets to go free. So arguably she gets the better end. It really felt like the entire thing is essentially like mocking this older woman for being quote unfuckable. Yeah, that's pretty much what it is. And yeah. being useless because she's old. Um, there's I, just one other thing that happened earlier on in the day. Uh, as we were coming out, we see that the um, leader of the raiding party, Zero Wolf, has a son who's named Cut Rock. Um, and Cut Rock uh, was injured in the fight. I think he gets knocked out by Blunted. Like, you think he, it's Blunted right. who actually knocks him over. And he's got a big scar or big... Uh, um, bruise around his eye he can't see out of it and cut rock like cuts it for him like a cut ma- cut corner man in a boxing match it's like million dollar baby scene and you can see that uh, Zero Wolf has a lot of respect and uh, like almost loving towards his son mm-hmm. and when we get to later on it explains why Zero Wolf is so adamant about chasing down and finding Jaguarpaw but it's, it's just I think it was meant to humanise Zero Wolf in particular right as a good dad similar to uh flint sky um who is jaguar paul's dad as right. in like even though they think these these older guys have seen a lot more and they're more willing to you know look after the younger generation and it's the younger men who are all about violence and attacking people yeah well they're kind of all about attacking people it's yes, just but, but... <laughs> But, you know, but yes, but there are emotional relationships on both sides of this. Yes, we have these kind of affective family ties. Mm-hmm. And Jaguar Paw is about, he's laid out on the altar, just about to have his heart cut out and his head cut off. And what happens there? All of a sudden, there is a solar eclipse. And so uh, the, I think the implication here, right, is that the, the common folk don't understand what this is, but that the priests do know what this is and immediately then kind of very quickly, right, use it to their advantage and say, oh, this must be a sign from the gods that, the, uh, that they have accepted our sacrifice. And so, like, now we're good. And... Uh, can stop sacrificing people. Yeah. And I talked about this and I'll talk about it a little bit later on with the, in the very also section. Um, the Mayans are famous for their Mayan calendar. They did have star charts. They did have information that was available that for the elites in the society. Um, and they were keeping records of stuff like this. Right. So there is a very good chance that the uh, shaman or whatever way you want to pronounce it is clearly the religious leader um, and the uh, king or the equivalent of the king, the chief, knew that this was going to occur, which right. is why they're having the sacrifices on this particular time and period. Can, they yeah, might not have known it, right. it to the hour, but they, they timed it so that, hey, we've made enough sacrifices. Look, the gods are happy. And even right. the, the shaman calls up um, to the sky is like let us know if we have appeased him just at the right about the right, right time yeah. when the moon is moving out of the sun and you're yeah. getting the corona and the thing about that is when the sun when the moon moves away you get that sudden bright flash mm-hmm. like that sudden ring that sudden really right like, um, it, it's only even referred to sometimes as the diamond ring effect um, you get this brilliant bright flash which would if he's calling out, give us a sign, and then you get that sudden bright flash and the sun comes back and thing. Right. You can totally understand why the people down below who have no knowledge of calendars and how all the things like this are organized and planned are like, oh my God, the gods have listened to us. We've, we've yeah. made them happy. We've appeased them. And 
I do buy that, you know, even knowing, right, the scientific advancements of the Maya, I do buy that that's something that would be, like, that doesn't seem unreasonable to me, I will say, right, that that's something that would be known among the kind of intellectual, cultural elites and not necessarily something known by, like, every random person in this village. Mm -hmm. Or city. Sorry. Yes, every random person in this city. So, yeah, this is quite... Uh, conveniently timed for Jaguar Paw. He, uh, he is, uh, you know, not to be sacrificed. Uh, but they basically are like, yeah, just ditch the rest of the captives. Um, and so they are taken off to be used by the, uh, the warrior raiders as target practice. And, uh, you know, it's like one of those things where like, yeah, like if you can, like, if you can go, you can go. Uh, like if you can get free, then like you can go. Uh, the first several of them um, are dumb. Mm-hmm. If somebody's like, in a line. yes, they're running in a straight line. That seems so obvious to me that if somebody is like throwing, is like throwing things and aiming them at you, which like they can see that like you run in a jagged line because that makes it harder. But no, like somebody, you, they have to like see the, you know, you have to like see the two people like be dumb and get killed before, you know, the next two, which are uh, Jaguar Paw and Blunted are like, okay, we're going to like do the running in a jagged line, which obviously. Well, Blunted, Blunted is one of the first guys. Um, oh, I thought Blunted was one of the second. Line. Oh, I thought he was one of the second yeah. with uh, Jaguar. Oh, no, okay. Yeah, so the the other guy with who runs with the second one also has a name and I can't remember it, but it's a cool name. Mm. I was like, oh, that's a cool name. I wish I, I oh, I'll, I'll look it up and I'll say it at the end. In fact, I might even edit it in right here. Yeah, but um, he is the one who runs with Jaguarpaw. Blunted gets um stabbed that's by a spear, right. and it's him who gives his spearhead, the one that's basically killed him, to Jaguarpaw in in the action scene. That's to right. Jaguarpaw at the end, and so basically, uh. Did those first two run in a straight line and get hit by spears and arrows and they die and then overcomes um uh cut rock and he finishes them off right so uh he thinks blunted is dead and down for the count so he doesn't really go over and slit his throat but he takes the other guy who i think was actually one of the other villagers so not one right. of jaguar parts i think was one of the originals and kills them and then it's Jaguar Paws turn and again he's partnered with somebody else and they do proper serpentine right they're running which makes left sense and right, right as much as they're running forward so that's making it harder for the people and they get a lot of arrows fired at them a lot of spears fired at them and eventually as they're coming right close to the end they get hit and right. one of them goes down he gets hit through the neck uh Jaguar Paw gets hit through I'm trying to describe it, but basically just above your kidneys, I'd say. And it goes I will say it does not look like a great location. Like, in general, I feel like the likelihood that somebody gets shot with an arrow there and then just, like, chill, like, runs, like, 40 miles doesn't seem super likely to me. No. And he's down for... He's down, and uh, Cut Rock comes along. He's going to kill him. But then Blunted uh, moves and groans and... Causes a distraction. Cut Rock goes over and finishes him off. And um, uh, Jaguar Paw is able to take the arrow that had pierced him. And he's now got an arrowhead. And when Cut Rock comes over to finish him off with um, uh, his dad, Zero Wolf, 
looking on from the stands now. He wasn't there originally. He came down. He pro- I'm, not, I'm not even certain. I kind of get the implication that he wouldn't have been happy with this. Like, mm. this just... that he, 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 he looks like he's not happy with the other soldiers who are allowing this to happen at the time. It's sort and- of unclear to me actually watching this because like when they, when they led the prison, cause like it's sort of unclear, right? Cause it does seem like he doesn't totally approve. But on the other hand, like when they told them to get like, to like lead the other prisoners off, I mean, they say something like, you know, finish them off or something like that. Like they don't say like, mm-hmm. let them go free or like yeah. have them help out with like construction on the pyramid like right like it seems like they are like the plan is for them just to be killed and so yeah. if he doesn't approve it's really just because like you know i don't know don't toy with your food i guess don't, don't play with your food i i was thinking more line, along the lines of either they were going to like either kill them just you know cut their throats um he said so easily like is it you know something you can do but um just kill them or as you said we see them with loads of people. These are big, strong guys. Bring them up, chain them up, and have them work on the pyramid that we see being built in the background. Like, that seems like a much more logical use of these men right. than, hey, go for a run and we'll use them as target practice. But Cut Rock is there anyway. He's, he, he, so we see it from the background. In the distance, it looks like he's bending down to finish them off. And then he turns around and he staggers and he falls and then Zero Wolf starts sprinting. That man is fast because um, he gets there way ahead of any of his men. And later on, when he's chasing down Jaguarpaw, he outdistances two much younger men in the woods yeah. or in the, the jungle to get to him. But he, I, I'm assuming he's a much, much superior warrior. I don't think Jaguarpaw would have any chance to take him on in a one-on-one fight if they'd have had, actually had to fight right. at any stage. Um, but yeah, he gets... Uh, his, his son is dead. He comes over and you know, you know, sees his son and tells him to go to sleep. The other, uh, at this point, Jaguar Paul goes running off into the, um, into the jungle, or sorry, into the, is it maze? It looks like a Like, first field. he, like, goes through a cornfield and then he comes to the mass grave. Mm-hmm. Falls into the mass grave where people have arms and legs cut off and heads cut off, clearly from the temple. And he gets into the jungle and is trying to escape and they are herring after him. They are much faster than him. They're well organized. They know where he's going. They know he's probably going to try and head back to his own village and they start following him. He hides at one point, a little drop of blood falls down and they realize that he's above them. But he is uh, happens to climb a tree that has a baby jaguar and a fully grown jaguar in it. And the baby jaguar is adorable. It's so cute. Uh, so cute. Like It's like, what the hell? I, know. I want one. Yeah, oh and it's like all floppy on the tree because it's know. clearly a very young jaguar. It's like, oh, you so want cute. one of those? I then he looks around and there's, yeah, fully grown and jaguar. And jaguar. <laughs> you're like, mommy jaguar does not look happy. And you're like, oh, that's a big old cat. Um, and after what happens to mommy jaguar, I'm worried about what happens to kitten jaguar. I know. Yeah, it's sad. But, um, he also like, so... Yeah, and, like, by the way, by this point, like, he does in what seems like not that much time, he gets, like, he, like, runs back, basically, ultimately, like, he will, he will, in fact, like, run back to where he started, and so, like, this journey that seems like it took, like, several days, mm-hmm. he just, yeah, he just, like, casually, back. uh, yeah, jogs back to his village, this, like, multi-day journey with a, like, pretty serious injury. Now, Sarah says casually, he's chased the entire time. And we do go through at least one full day of running and one night. Um, 
because there's a point where he stops and he's looking exhausted and he turns around and he sees that they're still chasing him in the woods like this you can still see the torches because obviously he's killed zero wolf's son and zero wolf wants to get him back um he my point is really just that i do not believe this man is not dead no, it's not quite as bad as, um, you know, uh, the last season of Game of Thrones where one character manages to run in one night carrying a hammer the distance that it'd take them several days to walk. But that's right. a different thing altogether. Um, but yeah, it is it is a ridiculous amount of run he does for a man who's injured. But he... He, in this one particular scene, he has a jaguar chasing him. The jaguar is going to kill him. Yeah, he outruns the jaguar. He outruns the jaguar. And then one of the other uh, Mayans gets in and just happens to run, uh, doesn't realize the jaguar is chasing him, runs in in front of him to try and catch him. And the jaguar kills him. And then the other men kill the jaguar. And this is where I think Zero Wolf, I think he's the more pragmatic or the most pragmatic of the characters. He's clearly a serious warrior. Mm-hmm. But... The other ones are talking about, oh, the omens, the omens, the omens. And he says, shut up. Stop worrying about omens. Use logic. We're hunting this guy down and he's injured and we're going after him. And he doesn't seem to be a super... And I get it. It's because he's motivated by the fact that his son had died. But he's also... He's not getting taken in by this. Even later on when somebody gets bitten by a snake and says again, the omens... And right. Zero Wolf just goes, ignore the omens. It's a snake. It happens to all of us. You take care of him and kill him. Right. And then they go off chasing him. Um, During this chase scene, Jaguar Paw is on the run. At one point, he falls into a big thing of mud. And it's I, I get so tense with this. I have an innate fear of drowning. I don't think that makes me special because I think all of us should have a fear of drowning at some stage. But he's in muddy water that's like not quicksand, but it's definitely not nice to be walking through. Right. And he is in this. He manages to come out. And after he comes out, he is like... Do you know what? I think he starts to re recognize the jungle area he's in. He's like, this is my home territory. I'm going to right. start taking these boys on. So he's covered in mud and he finds a, a big wasp's nest or a bee nest. And he turns around and he fires the bees at them because he's covered in mud so he can't get stung. They start getting stung very badly, which is obviously not going to be good for them. And they run away. Right. It gives him more time. He then captures a frog and makes his own little blow darts ends up killing uh one of the men with the blow darts and then that's when he gets to fight um what's the the guy's name uh middle eye middle, middle eye, eye yeah. so right. he he gets to fight middle eye middle eye tries to kill him he kills middle eye in a very brutal fashion um just to go into again and not into the gore stuff myself but he gets two hits in on middle eye in the head and both of them are done in relatively slow motion from behind. So you don't see him right. in contact with the face, but you do see the blood mist, which is produced. And I, I again, I'm going to sound like I'm super excited by this and all of the violence in this. This is just an exceptionally well done action movie. So I I totally understand the issues that Sarah going, is going to have with the story and the characterization. But as an action movie... This is about as good as a chase movie can get. So just picture all of the car driving scenes in Fast and the Furious movies. But instead of cars, it's people running through the woods and they're killing each other when they catch up with each other. And yeah, and that aspect of things, I will say, is like it's very original and makes for an interesting action movie. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, he gets back to the village. Uh, and he's got three people chasing him now. So Zero Wolf is still there. 
and two of Zero Wolf's cronies are still left alive. He comes up, he sees that his wife, it has started raining and his wife is down in the hole. Uh, during the night, they had to kill uh, Gibbon, I think it was, that fell down um, and she manages to fight it off with a big stick and kill it. She tries to escape a couple of times. We've been really focusing on what's happening with Jagarapaw, but she's tried to climb out and she's fallen down. She's injured. There's a brilliant, I say a brilliant scene. Um, <laughs> there's a scene where the little boy has a cut on his leg and there are some large ants uh, down in the thing and she gets them to bite uh, either side of the wound and then rips off the body so that the heads are acting like stitches to the wound again it's one of those things you're like gruesome. this can't possibly be real it's gruesome but it's i i would say undeniably a cool thing to see them doing and is it? like yeah i would say it is um but yeah so she's down there it started to rain and she started to have a baby so he gets there he Water looks down, are very in these days very in in, in 1502 really she, she was she, a trendsetter so she is still in the hole she has managed to keep uh, the little boy above water level, her own head above water level, and give birth to a child. Um, and he gets there, and he's still getting chased. He gets chased into the woods. He gets shot by Zero Wolf. Zero Wolf goes running towards him. And, I mean, I don't think a fully healthy Jaguarpaw has any chance against Zero Wolf, who legitimately comes across like a serious badass. But he runs into the spike trap. And I think uh, Jaguar Pod does, like, do something to trigger it. Like, he doesn't just straight, like... No, he runs straight in. It's the same as the tapir at the beginning. Yeah. Uh, It's it's pronounced tapir. So he basically just knocks over the little string because Zero Wolf isn't... If it was any other time, Zero Wolf probably would have spotted it. But because he's chasing after the man who killed his son and he sees him 10 yards in front of him, he runs straight through, triggers the um, tripwire. uh, Right. Jaguarpaw has done is put himself in the exact position. Right. He probably yeah, so he's set like it up. It. Yeah. yeah. So he's maneuvered himself, and um, you see Zero Wolf seeing that he's hit the tripwire and the realization on his face before the spike slams through him, but it does slam through him and he comes full circle. Dies and the drops taper, his knife. taper trap. Yeah. And uh, the, the difference here is at the beginning, they're chasing the taper here. The taper was chasing them. Um, and then the last two go to chase him. Again, he's very badly injured at this point. He has no chance. He's going to die. He manages to get out onto the beach because the village is shown earlier on to be close to the beach. He gets out onto the beach, falls down to his knees, and the other two men are just about to catch him, and they stop, and they look up, and what do they see in the ocean out there, Sarah? They see the Spanish ships, which uh, I absolutely did write on my notes. Oh, fuck off. (laughs) It is, it is genuinely funny. They come to a stop, completely ignore the fact that he's still there, and they're like, huh? huh? And then it cuts, and there are four large uh, Spanish ships, I'm assuming. Um, they, yep. They, and there are men coming ashore on longboats, one of them with the most, like, just picture in your head what a conquistador looks like. This guy looks like that. Yep. He's at the front. He's got his sword. He's got his long... Uh, Van Dyke beard and behind them there are two men carrying crosses looking very priestly and it's just again it's one of those things where like alright that's a good job movie because these two Mayans just head off towards to meet the Spanish conquistadors while Jaguar Paul goes back and saves his wife 
And then at the end, the last thing in the movie is him and his wife and his two children um, looking out at the conquistadors down on the beach. Yep. And she says, her name is Seven, and she says, hello, my name is Seven. She does not um, say that. Should, should, we, should we go down and hang out with these guys? And he says, no, Seven. You are my named my named wife Seven, and I think Seven that myself and yourself Seven that's your name. Um, We should go into the jungle, and then they go off into the jungle to avoid the conquistadors. I will say my end of our movie. My issue, I will say, she is she is not totally passive, right? I mean, she is. She is removed from, like, the majority of the action and, like, placed off in this, like, place in a corner where you can, like, find her conveniently when you get back. (laughs) My issue is more that I find it a little frustrating. It just, like, is a trope that I find... It's just has a trope that I find irritating when the only motivation that women have is mom. Mm-hmm. right where like yes she's active but she's like really only active in the sense that like she is like essentially she's doing like extreme child care yeah that's like what it is. like yeah. that's really all she's doing like she's soothing a kid's skin knee but in like a way that's like just like a teensy bit more badass yeah and so like that's Undeniably really badass sarah and so like that's really what i would say i find annoying is when like you have is like is like that trope of like women women just want a mom yeah well that that is effectively what's going on there and i totally understand that i personally i think it's cool um but i also understand the limitations of my own male brain there to go yeah, it is cool that she's down in that hole and she's also the motivation for him to go back to the village like, which you also know that i the jungle and you know that I hate when, like, women have to just be, like, you know, like, nice that they didn't just murder her, unlike the other women. But, like, I also don't like when, like, the only, like, the main point of a woman being in a movie is to provide some sort of motivation for a male character. And that's absolutely all she is. Really, like, that's the it. rest of the movie, you arguably could have made the exact same movie and not had her in it at all because you also could make an argument that he's leading them back to his village because like he knows that jungle. And once he gets them to that jungle, that's where he's able to kind of use his particular local knowledge to defeat them. Right. So you could have just had that and not have him had a wife in the first place. So she's essentially completely superfluous. Yeah, but I mean, Sarah, let's not just go saying we could cut women out of movies. My point is that if you could remove every female character from a movie and the plot would not noticeably change, then you don't really have female characters that matter. Yeah. One thing I will say about this this movie, um, and I'll say lots of stuff about this movie that's going on, um, because I genuinely think it's brilliant, is this is about as... I was going to say weak. This is about as straightforward as plots get. Like, it is effectively just a chase movie. He gets taken from his village, and then he's running back to his village and fighting off the guys who took him from the village in the first place. There is no depth to the plot. It is... No. Gets taken away, has to go back, is getting chased the entire time, has to fight off the people who chase him. There's no deeper motivations. There's no, let's talk about the 
the internal struggles of Mayan culture as it's falling apart because of their decadent lifestyles. Like, that's not what the movie is about. And it's not trying to, to convey this. So if it feels like we got to this point really quickly in the episode, it's because there isn't all that much plot to talk about. All there is is a collection of what I think are fascinating and interesting scenes and also a collection of scenes where I 100% can understand why Sarah would look at them and go, uh, you have to understand that this isn't quite as cool as you think it is and I'm like fine yeah I get it it's perfectly fine but that's why if it feels like we've gone through this really quickly it's because the pace of the movie it's is very super quick. quick and there's not a lot of plot exactly um yeah and so like and, and the thing that you know we're gonna talk about more <clears throat> as we go on is of course the fact that like the what we do know, right, is that there is a, quite a bit of brutality in a way that also I think, like, I'll keep talking about this, but that I think that opening epigraph really feels really, cent- like, combined with the arrival of the Spanish, really feels like the film is trying to present a sort of moral message, which feels racist. Yeah, that, so. I, I, and I totally understand where you can come to that reading of the movie. So just in, just because I don't, doesn't mean that I don't understand exactly where you're coming from. Yeah. So I think with that, we can get into the Vera et Falso, where we talk about what the film got right and what it got wrong. Vera et Falso. So, and as a quick disclaimer, this is definitely not my area of expertise. Primarily, I am trained mostly as a historian of, uh, you know, Western Europe, and you know, my work is, re- and you know, my in my you know research and teaching are mostly Western Europe and some of them in like some work in the Middle East. So, like that's really the areas that I tend to know better. Um, so, I've uh, I've done my best here to uh, do justice, but I'm sure I am missing things. I have a question, sir. Yes. Have you ever been tempted, like as a historian in your particular field? So, for example, as a, as a scientist in when I was studying for my PhD and stuff like this, I was focused mostly on electromagnetism, and I love electromagnetism and theoretical physics in general, really. And I never really felt like I was all that interested in, say, looking at fluid dynamics. Like it just, it just never really spoke to me, right? Um. So I'm wondering, like, or like even nuclear physics wouldn't really have been my my thing. Like, I I was never going to be an Oppie from Oppenheimer. Um, do you do you ever get like an itching, like, or an inkling to want to do some Mayan stuff? Like to go, I would like to go spend a year checking out some Mayan history or some Incan history or anything like that. Like every now and then a little bit I've kind of had some of those moments and I feel like the thing that for me is always like so actually I just heard a really interesting talk um by uh uh, by a historian who like made a pretty big shift and moved from um working primarily on um late medieval early modern Italy into working on uh Ethiopia Mm -hmm. and and like started with like connections yeah. Huge shift. Yeah. yeah. And started with like connections between those places and like Ethiopian pilgrims in Italy and then like moved to like things that were more kind of focused on Ethiopia, if I'm remembering everything correctly. Um, and the thing actually that, so, and the reason I'm explaining all this is actually in part because 
the really big thing then that comes up in terms of making a big shift in your research area there's the like learning a new like field and historiography and that is obviously like challenging and time consuming but it's something that i could see deciding to do the thing that i think ultimately for me would probably be a limiting factor that would mean I wouldn't necessarily end up going quite this far afield, even if I actually I actually do think like based on what I was reading, I think it's really, really fascinating. But the reason I don't think I would actually ever like go like swing to like studying Mayan history probably is the fact that like is languages. Yeah. Um, that learning. Obviously, obviously this movie is in a language which I do not speak, but I'm assuming you do, sir. Oh, obviously, of course. I mean, so so like here's here's the lines that I didn't think I'd get quite right. No. <laughs> so yeah, I I do not speak this uh, this language, and so uh, I did. However, I spent some time looking up. Uh, there is a modern Maya dialect which is currently spoken in some places in the Yucatan. That is what is being used in the film, which is like certainly not necessarily right. Languages evolve. Um, so you can, and like, I think probably there is like some amount of now, like in a modern context, right? Some amount of Spanish influence. So like what they are actually speaking in the film is definitely not quite what they would have been speaking in 1502, uh, which I can say based Mm. on research, but, uh, not unfortunately on my actually having any knowledge of like Yucatan Maya, um, or like 16th century Maya languages or dialects. And that, as I said, probably is like the limiting factor of what would keep me from going into this as a field would be like having to learn Mayan. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds very hard and very time consuming. Like, I feel like I also had, I also like kind of had a moment of being like kind of into Eastern European history Mm-hmm. And like kind of the same thing that I'm like, I'm I'm not fucking with all those Slavic languages. I was about to say that's a lot of Slavic languages to uh, to master at that point. Yeah. Especially with them being so different. Like they might have the same base, but like it, you move 300 yards, 12, 300 yards, 300 miles down the road and it's completely different. Like. Yeah. Yeah. And like, and you know, and it's, and so like for me, it's like, it's one thing at this point in in my life to say like I'll kind of like add in a new romance language mm-hmm. uh not that it's like 100% easy especially in terms of actually like speaking the language but like that feels like but that feels doable to get from like mediocre to like decent Italian mm-hmm. getting to a point where I could meaningfully do scholarly work in Mayan or like Czech not so much. No. So um, what does the movie get right and or wrong? Sorry. So um, first of all, I will note that there is, uh, there is a lot of discussion on this. And there uh, was a historical consultant, Richard Hansen, who uh, does defend the film and has a lot of emphasis on like these are the, de- you know, like there are a lot of, you know, details that really are accurate, uh, but acknowledges that sometimes, you know, the filmmakers ignored him and, uh, you know, historians and anthropologists and art historians who did not work on the film. Um, some are certainly uh, less generous in terms of their discussions. Mm-hmm. 
So uh, first of all, some discussions of material culture. So it seems like a lot of the uh, the tattooing and the jewelry, a lot of it is accurate, sort of, in that a lot of it is accurate to something, but there's a lot of mingling of different eras and even some amount of kind of mingling of like Maya things with things that are with like Aztec things or, you know, or like, or, you know, and whatnot. Right. So, Hmm. um, I, so I spent some time kind of reading a little bit about it. So we uh, review from, uh, Andrea Stone, who's an art historian who works on this area and, uh, who describes the film as an admixture of attempted faithfulness and well, not. So, uh, So she like notes, for example, that the things that like the priests and the royalty are wearing in the city uh, very much seem like the kinds of things that you see in like the the Maya classic period, mostly. Uh, so which would have been earlier, that would have been like back in the like eighth, ninth century. But then also includes things like turquoise jewelry and gold beads, which um are materials that they started using much later. Right. So that they're combining these things. Uh, they're also, you know, they're kind of going back and forth in terms of, um, they're sort of using some of the, like, they're, like the fact that they are kind of using a lot of, like, body painting and piercing and facial scarring, that's kind of accurate in a general sense in terms of, like, how um, Maya, like, warriors in particular would have, like, decorated themselves and presented themselves. But that, like, mm-hmm. the specific details of how that's done... Um, are things that are like combine some things that are accurate and then combine some things that are like totally just kind of drawn from like, she said there's like one thing where she says that like the tattooed rings around the biceps look like they're just something that you would see in the NBA. Uh, (laughs) And then that like some of the like facial piercings are really more like Aztec style than Maya style. So um, that, and there's like some things that are just invented. So, uh, you know, a kind of combination of things. Uh, also shockingly enough, the, uh, women are in much skimpier outfits than, uh, they probably would have been in real life that like they would have worn like clothing that actually covered a decent amount of their bodies instead of like teensy tiny loincloths and like boob beads. (laughs) I've heard them described as boob beads before, but yeah. Look, that is an accurate description of what they are wearing. Um, The the only thing I would say about it is, obviously I'm not an expert in this um, at all, and I would never even claim to be, is as as I was watching the movie and the first time I was watching the movie, as somebody who has no background in this whatsoever, when I looked at it, all of it reads South American-based people or central american based people like it, it reads as you said like oh this could be incan this could be aztec this could be mayan like it reads as jungle dwellers from the right the, the 500 to 1500 period of of history and like as you said they're taking shortcuts and they're mixing up different cultures and mixing stuff because it just reads on screen as oh yeah that that absolutely looks like somebody who could be a mayan to me right and i I kind of like think about like, so I was sort of trying to think about this. And so I will say on the one hand, like on the one hand, I will say like that is on the, okay. On the one hand, I wonder if to some extent, right. That is like born out of like Anglo American 
ignorance, right, of, like, this particular region and the, like, details and the differentiation of different cultures and of different time periods, and that they're sort of banking on the fact that, like, their audience doesn't know those distinctions and are, and the filmmakers are deciding they don't care. On the one hand, that does seem Eurocentric. On the other hand, I will say, in terms of, like, being entirely fair, Filmmakers also kind of do that with the European Middle Ages, at least in terms of having a lot mm-hmm. of things where, like, everything in the Middle Ages sort of takes place at the same time. Um, <laughs> that is true, yeah. And that, like, you might, like, pop in, like, something that's clearly, like, 14th century Italian is all of a sudden, like, popped into 12th century England. So on the one hand, that is something that I can see it being kind of, like, ethnically, racially offensive. On the other hand... I will say it also seems like it is at least part like related to general attitudes that filmmakers tend to have toward the pre-modern more broadly. So, um, and probably like the two things are not mutually exclusive and are being combined in this particular situation. Mm -hmm. Um, The thing I will say that seemed the most problematic to me is that so uh, there's a rather famous set of murals, uh, the Bonampak murals, which date from about the year 790. And they depict a variety of court scenes and warfare scenes and rituals, and they do include depictions of sacrifices. But that basically they just like popped in a uh, a severed human head with blood flowing out of it that, like, isn't actually in the mural, and they just, like, plopped that into the mural. <laughs> Here you go. We've added this for you. You probably forgot to put it in. Right. So it's just, like, that strikes me as problematic, the, like, editing of a mural to be, like, more brutal and bloody in this particular way. That seems sort of obvious to, you know, that, that you know, that seems like it's kind of, you know, one of the issues here. Um, there is relatedly also, I will say, like, some amount of debate about the question of human sacrifice, So historians used to generally argue that the Aztecs practiced human sacrifice, the Maya didn't. Um, Increasingly, with the archaeological evidence that we have, uh, it is very clear that the Maya did, in fact, practice human sacrifice. So while we can certainly discuss, and I'll say more about this in a moment, right, it is obviously still a choice to place more emphasis on human sacrifice than scientific advancements and the fact that they know when the eclipse is coming, right? Like, Mm. which is like a plot point, which is, I would say, kind of subtle as compared to the extremely not subtle human sacrifice, (laughs) right? Yeah. Like, uh, you know, you can- Very, very not subtle. No, I mean, so, you know, so you can have discussions, right, about the question of emphasis and what that emphasis is doing in the film. But it is the case that, yes, the Maya did practice human sacrifice um, and that this would include, right, the extraction of the heart. Uh, however, there are a couple of areas in which it does seem pretty clear that the they kind of didn't feel that strongly about accurately depicting the details of human mm-hmm. sacrifice. Uh, So, for example, the Maya apparently primarily sacrificed uh, high-status prisoners of war so that they would be sacrificing, like, elites. They wouldn't just be sacrificing, like, whoever they grabbed in some tiny-ass village. Yeah. Um, So, you know, that certainly is part of it. Uh, The film also seems to imply that, like, we're really talking about, like, mass 
human sacrifice. And uh, the archaeological evidence indicates that, like, the volume of people sacrificed is far, far lower than, like, what is talked about in Spanish sources, for example, and also far, far lower than what seems to be depicted in this film. Uh, and relatedly, yeah. And when you, when- yeah. When you say Spanish sources, you mean brought back by the conquistadors? Yeah, so like the accounts of the conquistadors, uh, like, yeah, that like they're they're describing these people that they're encountering. Um, And as historians, right, we've long been, you know, we have long known, right, that you take those sources with a pretty hefty grain of salt, uh, right, that they might have. They're going out of their way to make it appear as if the Mayans were they needed our culture to come and save them. Like exactly. They were, they were vicious, human-sacrificing animals. Yeah. Exactly. So, uh, and so, and so that's part of the reason, right, that there were some historians who used to really, uh, until certain archaeological evidence came to light, that they just kind of dismissed some of these accounts entirely, right, and said, well, the Aztecs did practice human sacrifice, but the Maya didn't, and the Spanish just essentially, like, are demonizing all of these people and or, like, don't know the difference between the different groups. Uh, mm-hmm. So, as I said, so we do now know that they did practice human sacrifice, but that it would have been much uh, less in volume than what shows up, right, either in the sources produced by conquistadors or what is seen in this film. Uh, relatedly, there is no archaeological evidence that they used mass graves like the ones that we see, like the one that we see here. Uh, and like the, you know, using captives for target practice thing, which is like very like brutal and upsetting, even though it's like sort of ambiguous, you know, who, who kind of authorized it, but it is a pretty like dramatically like horrific kind of sadistic scene. Right. And that's something that like, there's no, you know, basis whatsoever. Like that is definitely just an invention of the filmmakers. Yeah. Even, even where the scene takes place, it's at the top of one of the, like, if you've ever seen a picture of a Mayan temple or if you've ever been lucky enough to go to see a Mayan temple, um, the idea that they would have people up, cut their hearts out and their heads off and just let the blood flow down the steps of their temple just doesn't make sense. Right, really. right. Like, this is our special sacred place. Here's the blood just running down. Just no problems. And also, even the way it's filmed in the movie, it looks like the blood stains look very similar in location and darkness to the growth of algae etc that are on modern versions of the temples like the, the the older ones like so it's like oh you know when you look at this picture and you see this growth of grass maybe it's where all the blood was like it just feels othering in a way that just is yeah vaguely nonsensical yeah and related to that so there's and this is okay so first of all there's uh as i already said and have alluded to there's a lot of chronological messiness so the film, right, is depicting the Maya and like the Maya are not at their height in 1502, right? The Maya were at their height in like 800. So, or, you know, or even earlier, right? But like the, so the cities as depicted in this film, they really make much more sense like 700 years earlier, right? In terms of like a kind of massive city like that with that kind of, like with that kind of temple, right? Like, and like something that clearly is this kind of like capital city that makes a lot more sense a lot earlier than it does in this period where a lot of cities had been abandoned and the ones that still exist is my, my sense is that like the ones that still exist would have been quite a bit smaller. Yeah. Um, so there's that, so there's that kind of chronological messiness. But even in 1502, 
the Maya would like still not have been like these like completely isolated village people, right? So they start out as this very urbanized culture. They also have very extensive agricultural systems. And so it also feels very othering in addition, right, that you have these villagers who seem to genuinely not know what a city is. Yeah, they like, look shocked when they're coming in and see the temple. Yeah, like the they really seem like they've like never heard of a city or of like, I think they actually say something about like a place where things are made of stone. Yeah. And like <laughs> that just, and that felt really, really cringe to me. Um, and, uh, so I also have another kind of quote on this, uh, from that same, uh, art historian, Andrea Stone, which I found interesting that she says that the otherness of Jaguar Paw's village relative to the city dwellers who were only a day's walk after all also strikes me as unreal. I would never have identified this place as the hometown of classic Maya corn farmers who lived in a dispersed settlement pattern. She has, has more details about the kind of general inaccuracies of how the village is depicted. Um, and, uh, then, uh, and then kind of notes as well. One unwitting film critic even referred to the villagers as hunter gatherers. Let's get this straight. Even the most countrified classic Maya were not hunter gatherers. Mm -hmm. Right. So it seems very much like where the insistence seems very much right on we're kind of presenting these villagers that we have who are our heroes, right? They're the ones who are like comparatively like nice, but are being presented as sort of irredeemably primitive um, in terms of right our attitudes about kind of what counts as culture and what doesn't. Um, and then we have so we have like the primitivity of the villages and then the like extreme like brutality and like cultural decadence and degradation in the urban centers. Of the city folk. Like, yeah. yeah. So that then I think leads into the Historia et Veritas. Historia et Veritas. Where I want to talk about this uh, this kind of meta narrative that is implicit in the film of this idea of civil civilizational decline and this concept essentially that the the Maya and Aztec and these other indigenous peoples in uh, Central and South America that basically they needed the Spanish to come in and save them from themselves essentially. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to repeat our opening quote, which is a great civilization is not conquered from without until it has destroyed itself from within. Uh, I will just uh, yes. one little thing there. Just if, if people heard me laughing there and I'm not sure if I'll be able to edit it out because it was right over Sarah's uh, talking. It's because I've just read a line that Sarah's written in the notes about three lines further on. and <laughs> It's pretty funny. So. This comes from an 11-volume work called The Story of Civilization. I will note that Gibson uh, cites this as just being a quote from Will Durant. Um, arguably, the quote should be attributed to Will and his wife, Arielle Durant. Uh, she uh, formerly co-authored the last five volumes and arguably did quite a bit of work on the first six as well. But, you know, then Gibson would have to give credit to a woman, and clearly he doesn't like doing that. <laughs> That's what I was laughing at. Um... <laughs> so... 
Wilterant writes this 11-volume work called The Story of Civilization, published between 1935 and 1975. Cards on the table. I have not read this. I don't especially want to read this. I personally um, don't think much of this kind of... uh, meta-narrative, like, trying to create a coherent narrative of, uh, I think, basically something like 5,000 years of history, I think is a fool's errand, especially when you take into account that nobody is actually an expert in all of those things. Nor Durant is also not an expert in all of those things. I'd rather read excellent scholarship be done by people who are actually like really experts in the thing that they are writing about, which mm-hmm. means that it's going to be something a lot like narrower than this kind of by definition, right? Nobody is actually an expert in uh, this, in like in uh, essentially it like begins with like the Sumerians and goes to like, I think maybe the 19th century, right? Like nobody is expert in that many things. Uh. My school has a copy uh, of this, this, the story of civilization. And I have, in fact, taken the first volume off the shelf, mm. taken a look at it, uh, taken a look at the Is that the first volume called Our Oriental Heritage? Uh, that is exactly what it is. <laughs> and that was, that's what I was just about to bring up. It is, I got, I got as far as the title page and then I started reading the introduction and I just went, no thanks. Put it back up. I was never going to read it anyway, but it is sitting there in the school library, um, very close to the science fiction fantasy section in our school <laughs> library. It's in the historical section. And I just think it's so funny that it's there. Like, there is no reason in any way, shape, or form that any of my students would ever right. need to look at that. That's and I'm great. not even saying the students who I don't teach. Like, there are students obviously who aren't doing physics. And I, I but well, the students physics. that are doing history should read real history. They, that's what I'm saying. Is there, there is no use for these books there, but they and they look beautiful. They are collected editions and they're mm-hmm. the, the leather bound copies of the books. But I was like, like, why are they there? Like, there's no reason for them to be here, but they're there. I'm, I must take a picture actually and, and set them up. Please it's do. It's so funny. Um, there's also a bunch of like the history of the Irish Republic, mm. but it's written before Ireland was a republic. Ireland, we were a republic in 1949, <laughs> and these were written in. The History of the Irish Republic, written in 1921. That's not where the Republic. How can we have a history there? But anyway, that's beside the point. So the other thing I will note is that he is, um, this work purports to be history, and he is described as a philosopher and historian. His PhD is in philosophy. He's not a historian. He's a philosopher (laughs) pretending he's a historian. Like, he doesn't actually know anything really about the history he's like really just like basically this is like a like survey of like the great philosophical achievements of the west and like that is in heavy scare quotes mm-hmm. like it's like a, a lot of it's like psychologists and all the uh, social scientists people pretending to be scientists it's yeah real yeah right psychologists also sometimes pretend to be historians they're also bad at that mm-hmm. cough <laughs> St- <laughs> Stephen pinker <laughs> cough <laughs> I'm gonna cut that out, Sarah. <laughs> no, please don't. I absolutely, no. I stand by that. No, like it's just like, I, uh, no. There's like a, this. Um, I'm not starting a war with Steven Pinker again, Sarah. Hmm. I'm gonna anyway. tag him when I release this. Episode. <laughs> 
Please do. I'm gonna I'm gonna at him. I'm gonna I'm gonna be in his DMs. <laughs> That's a joke. I've never been in anybody's DMs. I so. know. Yeah, you, you, you don't even understand how Twitter works slash X. I don't know it's how, X now. I don't I don't know how X works. I don't know how Instagram works. So um, do you yeah, still have a completely stuff. blank Instagram page? It's completely blank. I'm still gaining followers. Um, which is I, nothing short of entertaining to me. But anyway, that's again beside the point. Let's go back to talking about uh, the, the yes. what really happened. Yes. So, uh, so you know, so Durant Wright has this uh, has this book. Uh, this, or sorry, this series of uh, of of books, which you know I haven't read, but it feels very much like the point is like, look how cool these white people are, um, which is why I'm not reading it, and and also I have better things to do with my time. Like read real history, and um, it's but the uh, but I will also note the original context of the quote is specifically the uh, the the fall of the Roman Empire, right? And mm-hmm. so uh, you know, for the fall of the Roman Empire, that arguably that quote specifically when specifically applied to the fall of the Western Roman Empire. I don't find these like destruction, like decline, et cetera, narratives, right? Like that useful in some ways, in some ways, but like that kind of makes sense. And it's like, as a quote applied to specifically the context, right? Of the Western Roman empire, right? That it clearly like has a lot of internal issues and that it is the internal issues as much as like the Germanic invasions, which explain like why, the Western Roman Empire kind of gradually fell in the, over the course of the fifth century. Yeah. Fine. That is not actually true of the context for this film. So there are kind of two different problems. So one is the question of, okay, so if we're talking about, I mean, there's a, there's a myriad problems, but okay, there's... <laughs> So if we're actually talking about the Maya, the Maya are already in their post-classic period. So while I don't think like talking about them destroying themselves from within is ever a useful way of describing what happened, essentially. But uh, it is certainly the case, right, that like the Maya had uh, like are no longer already right at their peak at this point. But the reason that the Maya are, like, completely wiped out at this stage, and for that matter, the reason that, say, like, the Aztecs, who are arguably kind of at their height at this point, the reason that they are wiped out is not because of, like, internal factors. It is 100% because of the intense brutality of the Spanish colonialist invaders combined with the disease brought by the Spanish colonialist invaders. Another, uh, also just fuck Columbus and fuck the rest of them too. But <laughs> like, make sure you get in your fuck Columbus, Sarah. Can, can never, never, can, uh, can never avoid saying fuck Columbus. And so like, there is very much right this, this kind of need, right, to claim that this conquest was something that, like, we can blame on the indigenous the populations, yeah. right? Like, that is the implication here, and that is frankly bullshit. 
Yeah, it, it's such a weird quote to put up at the beginning because I said, "Well, it's the, not the weird; movies, it's racist." It, no, what, <laughs> That's I was what waiting it is. for you to call that out specifically, but this this idea that the quote that comes up is about the fall of civilization from the inside, and we're focusing on this little village and this this guy from a little village who wants to get back and save his wife. The only time they go to anything that's approaching civilization is the Mayan city, and. I don't know whether he, he meant that quote to be linked to the fact that the leadership of the city is linked to the religion. Um, but he, but like Mel Gibson's a well-known super Catholic. Like, so right. I don't know if he wants to, he wants to look for a Because you know society. what's a great non-violent religion? The Spanish Catholics in 1502. <laughs> Remember, Sarah, they were not in any way uh, condoned by the Pope, that they were all acting on their own in their own ways uh, as separate entities. but and, uh, is- and also commissioned by a demon. So, you know, but like, oh, no, course, yeah. I mean, but I'm just saying even like regardless, right, of the, you know, regardless of the involvement of the papacy, which did authorize the whole thing in the first place. And also the popes had their own inquisition, which also was not good. Um, but even if we're just like very specifically talking about like the Spanish in the year 1502, we are absolutely talking about like the context of the Spanish Inquisition, which, by the way, also gets imported to the Americas, right? That's one of the very, very early things that these Spanish conquistadors do is that they like bully slash trick people into converting to Christianity. And then mm-hmm. once you've converted, then- you're stuck with it. And then you've got the Spanish Inquisition to, you know, if you are like, you know, if you are practicing your own religion or have syncretic religious practices or whatever, then you got the Spanish Inquisition. Yeah. The, and the, the, as I said, the, the boats have clearly religious figures uh, coming onto the uh, land with them to bring Christianity to the savages that are there. Um and what I was getting at in, in terms of the village versus the, the city dwellers in the movie is they are, the city dwellers are concerned with money. They're buying people. They're um, wearing all sorts of jewellery that looks like it's made out of metal and um, uh, obsidian, stuff like this. Like, whereas the humble villagers from the country are you know living in peace and harmony as hunter-gatherers and they're all happy and everybody in the village is great friends and they've got like people they're, they're all laughing and joking whereas the people in the cities it's all crowded and they're all they're all just like uh scrambling over each other and showing no respect and there's no sort of camaraderie and mm-hmm. when money gets dropped on the ground they're all scrambling down to pick it up and again it feels like mel gibson making some sort of um massive uh massive point about how country folk like i know he's not american but country well technically he is american but uh, i because he was born there but um he's making a point about how you know uh the common folk like himself are not like the big city dwellers in new york they're not like wall street concerned with their their money they're just concerned right. with, you know living the healthy happy life and it's the wall street people that are bringing down america from the inside like and all of this it just it's it's just a nonsense quote. It's a nonsense right. thing to even suggest that it was linked in there. And it's the got certainly it's linked to right his own dis, his own thoughts about you know current what's going culture, on in politics, politics etc. Yeah, two thousand and six and and like racism and populism in U.S. politics are very and like anti like urbanization and anti like the urban elites, which is also just like straight up code for Jews. Like 
you know, all of these things, right, are deeply linked in the, like, in, like, American political ideology, and that seems very much like what's at work here. Also, I guess, kind of makes sense, right, that, you know, he, uh, Gibson probably fucking loves the Spanish Inquisition, you know, they're... <laughs> they're doing, his boys. Doing God's work of killing Jews left and right, and, and yes, and they're, obviously, I know they're killing, uh, con, you know, converts, you know, people who are converts and are not targeting people who are still technically Jews, but just, uh, no, no, but... Just, uh... Just for people listening again, I'm not saying that this movie is directly about American politics and I'm not saying anything even remotely similar to that there. I'm just saying is it's a very easy read to take on it, knowing yeah. who directed it and what it was about. And yeah. also that quote is tacitly uh, defending and saying that it wasn't the Spanish or the Spanish conquistadors that brought down the Mayans. It was the Mayans who brought down themselves. Right. And it wasn't. They. It was absolutely, as Sarah said, the incredibly brutal tactics that the conquistadors brought to the land of just randomly killing half of a village when they wanted to. And again, that's stuff that they've recorded. And when you think about this, as we talked before about how the conquistadors would come back and tell stories that would make them look like they were in the right and the, the, the good people in this scenarios and were still telling stories about how they killed half of a village to send a message. What do you think they were actually doing? You know, it just, it's if, if right. the good version of the story is look at how nice we were we let half of them live chances right. are they were wiping out entire populations and areas so yeah uh, yeah and in, so in, in short f that narrative yeah and exactly and like that's very much what it feels like this film is doing right because like it's making this choice right that we are depicting the maya as incredibly brutal like right the takeaways that you have from this film in terms of what are the characters doing are murder and like murder and hunting people for sport and human sacrifice, right? Like that is what you come away with in terms of like, what did the Maya do, right? You're not meaningfully including in the film scientific advancements. You're not meaningfully including art. You're not meaningfully including anything about like Maya religion or spirituality beyond the human sacrifice, you know, the sensationalist human sacrifice stuff. You're not including anything about agriculture. You're not getting a good sense of, right, like the realities of urbanization. There are all sorts of like many, many very interesting things about the Maya that are not in this film. The only thing that is in the film is brutality, really. And that combined with this uh, this book ending, right, that we open with this quote from Durant and then end with uh, these Spanish ships very much is uh, shaping that as the kind of overall narrative of the film. And I don't know, you know, I don't think that the film would have been perfect or great or that I would have had no concerns or critiques without those bookends. But I think those bookends really do a lot of work in terms of telling the audience how they are supposed to read this film. Mm -hmm. And I think that makes it significantly more disturbing and problematic than it would have been otherwise. I mean, because even I will just say... Like, because the other thing I will even just say comparing it is that, like, I will say, if you watch Braveheart, which I will be in, again, in the not-too-distant future, because I uh, 
I'm teaching, I always teach it in my Medieval at the Movies course, and I'm offering that next semester. The, are the Maya, according to, like, Mel Gibson and whoever his buddies are that he's working with, are the Maya actually more horrifically sadistic and brutal than the, uh, the 14th century English? Not necessarily, I will say. They, they're probably about even. But we don't have that frame narrative, right, in Braveheart about the, like, civilizational decline of the English, right? Like, that does change things. Yeah, and that, that's the thing. And the, the weird thing about this is, if you go in and see so you just type Apocalypto ending explained into uh, into Google, right? Um, it's not something I've ever done because I don't need the ending explained to me. But if you ever look this up, you will see people who have to explain that the conquistadors showing up at the end are not the good guys and they're not saving Jaguarpaw. Well, because like, I think they're th- supposed they're pe- to be representing, represented but, as saving the civilization. Because there are so many people who will look at this and go, ah, yes, the conquistadors are the saviors here. When all readings of the movie should be the conquistadors showing up the apocalypto that's being talked about here is the apocalypse of the Mayan culture. That's what's happening. And the conquistadors are bringing that apocalypse with them. Just because it happens to be that Jaguar Paw doesn't get killed by the two men who are about to kill him who inexplicably decide to walk towards the ships instead doesn't change the fact that that's what the conquistadors did. They destroyed all yeah. of the civilizations that were in the Yucatan Peninsula and further south into, um, into South America. But there are people who see us, oh, thank God those guys showed up in the ships. Like, when people are able to view your movie and take that reading from it, you've done a bad idea or a bad job of actually representing yeah. the situation. And that's and that's my, my sense, right? Is that they, I mean, they haven't done a bad job and that I think that's exactly what they wanted to do. I am going to be more generous. To Mel Gibson? Yeah, You're going to be dude, generous in assuming Mel Gibson isn't a racist. <laughs> You're going to take Melanie the generous Gibson. stance that Mel Gibson, Gibson, definitely not that guy, racist. Good no. dude. Good dude. One of our Catholics. We, we have to respect him. Sarah, we should move before I do end up inadvertently saying that racism is good uh, which I would never do because uh, it's bad just anyone listening that's my stance on this um, Sarah what's your stance on racism we don't have time for that Fabula Nostra Fabula Nostra is a section where we talk about a different version of the same story so we're going to take the name Apocalypto and we're going to come up with our own version of it right now uh I'll take the, the lead so that Sarah doesn't get to talk for a couple of minutes so that she can't answer that question about where she stands up racism. Um, but against. as guest... Against. Against racism. <laughs> no, we can't even hear that. That's all edited out, Sarah. Nobody's going to hear that. Um, so me, I'm against it. We don't know where Sarah Ifdecker stands. But um, I would like to take the idea, and I'm going to infuriate Sarah by what I'm going to say here. Are you stealing my idea? No, no, I'm not going to steal your idea. Um, I would like to take the idea of apocalypse and apocalypto and the Mayan culture and go full supernatural on it. 
what if the gods were real what if they were actually trying to appease gods and what if they failed and then the movie is similar to what we've actually got but no conquistadors no silly quote at the beginning and it's actually about a race of people who have inadvertently pissed off their gods and the gods are sending a series of natural disasters at them mm-hmm. and they are struggling and rushing to try and find a way to fix it. Now, I was thinking about this in relation to the Mayan calendar and then I realised, am I describing the movie 2012? But I think you might be describing effectively, the movie Effectively, I am describing the movie 2012, but I want it <laughs> set in 1502 where okay. the Mayans are not represented as humble villagers out hunting and gathering in the woods they are the scientists and um people who are keeping historical records in effectively great detail at the time and who are working to try and figure out what have we done wrong how have we actually pissed off the gods here so it's a supernatural version of the same movie where the gods are real and they're actually going to destroy the Mayan civilization and it's the Mayan people there's no Spanish conquistadors coming in to save the day at the end it's the Mayan people trying to figure out how do we save some of our people in this situation how do we make um, the equivalent of giant ships I actually am describing 2012 now to, think about it, uh, to keep our people safe at the end so yeah that's what I would like to see a version of Apocalypto where the gods are real and the Mayan people have to try and figure out how to save themselves so my version was not going to be as uh, overtly supernatural, but it was going to be the Mayan people kind of figuring out how to struggle with kind of, you know, changes in their society and, uh, you know, fa- and, you know, facing factors like, you know, warfare and drought and environmental crises. In other words, the things that led the Mayans to abandon many of their cities back in about the year 900. So I would like to not even, like, you don't even have to worry about the Spanish. The Spanish have no idea they're fucking over there. The Spanish are nowhere near, right? They will not be for hundreds of years. Uh, We are set in the year Mm 900-ish, right? And uh, so essentially just, like, dealing with the challenges of, uh, you know, that the Maya are facing at this time, Uh, Maybe you have a kind of family who is like, you know, based in like the cities at the time when they're being kind of forced to like when increasingly people are like abandoning the cities uh, um, and they're kind of trying to figure out what to do with that. So that's what I would like to uh, to focus on is essentially kind of uh, emphasizing basically the. As I said, I'm not sure I really like the word like decline of a civil of civilization. I'm not sure I really like that phrase, but like the, you know challenges that this like that this society and culture are facing which are in many ways unprecedented uh in this period that is considered to be like really the kind like that is considered to be more of a kind of period of uh of kind of like decline from their peak basically would you be would you be puzzling this as rather than the movie as some sort of limited miniseries like maybe a six episode yeah um, i think that's HBO max kind of thing yeah i think so i think that would work well like something like something kind of similar to write like i don't know like the first season of rome yeah i feel like would like I mean, be the good season yeah the good season 
Um, well, no, Rome season two is just it's for, okay. for anyone listening. Rome season two is still good. It's not it's bad. It's not season as good as better. season one. Season yeah. one is way better. Yeah. Um, yeah. So like yeah, something, I'd, I'd something kind of like that, right? And so, and so, you know, there might be like discussion, right, within the population, like within the characters. Some of the characters might like discuss po- like possible supernatural explanations. Um, but you know, but like that would be something the characters would be saying, right? It wouldn't be something in my in my version that would not be something that was like overtly what was going on, as opposed to that like. There, you know, there are like real like environmental catastrophes, essentially, right, which are caused by you know the environment doing what it does. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sounds uh, again. That sounds super interesting, and I would like to watch something. As you said, you've mentioned this before. Yeah, there's always this Anglo-European centric, like our Anglo-French centered yeah. version of that, those time periods, and. Like we know why there's the Anglo French right. centering there, and it, like it's it's nothing. Even the, even the Spanish versions of it, which are usually set two hundred, three hundred years later, it's all focused on the same things. It would be right. nice to see what's actually going on here at that time period, right. and how are those people dealing about it. So right. it's similar to what I want, except I want a two-hour movie where there's like actual gods. Like, <laughs> but yeah, similar. But yours yours is probably. Probably going to win a bunch of awards, mm. and mine's just going to have dudes in Ireland. And yours like, yeah, directed by Michael Bay. Um, Listen, not Michael Bay does. <laughs> I can't even say he does good work. No, he doesn't. <laughs> He's bad. Uh, the other thing I will note for my idea is that um, I would really like the. So I would really like it actually to be. Um, directed, written, uh, you know, have some significant involvement from uh, people who are actually, like, meaningfully connected to this culture, like people who, like, today would identify as being Maya. Well, monkey's paw situation, Sarah, you get to make it, and it's going to be exactly the way you describe it, but Taika Waititi is going to be directing it, and he's going to make it a comedy. I think maybe no. (laughs) Nope, that's what's happening. He's going to put in lots of jokes. I think I'm maybe a no on that. No, nope, <laughs> and I like Taika Waititi, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure about that. Estimatio. Sarah, we should probably get to our ratings. Uh, I'm the guest, but um, I think you should go first. <laughs> so I think I'm going with. I think I'm going to the two out of five. Mm-hmm. This is beautifully filmed. It is well acted. It is interesting. And if this had been directed by somebody else, and if it hadn't had that opening quote and those fucking Spanish ships, I would say, like, I could see that even if, like, there are still issues, there are still gender issues, but, like, I could say, like, right, if it, if it had been directed by a different person and didn't have that, like those bookends, I feel like I could have come away from this and at least been like, I'm glad that somebody made a movie that's not about, I'm glad that somebody made a movie in a, in a pre-modern setting that isn't England and France, right? Like I could have seen coming away with that, but and so it's getting some points for that. And like, and I will, and you know, and credit where credit's due, right? That like they hired indigenous actors. Um, but it, you know, 
still really highlights that uh, maybe we should have indigenous people uh, telling their own stories instead of having them be told by a notorious racist. Maybe. Mm -hmm. And I just ultimately can't get past the racism of this implicit meta narrative in the film. Uh, And by the way, a like healthy dose of misogyny or at least like genuinely not being interested in the existence of women. Um, yeah. So I think I'm going basically, yeah, I think I'm going a two out of five where really it's like essentially getting like some points for not being about England and France. I, and, and like maybe making people want to learn more about a pre-modern culture that they didn't know something about. So essentially it's like, it's getting a couple of points for that. And because like it is, there are ways in which it is obviously a, like, I understand that it is a well-made movie. Unlike some yeah. of the real shit I've watched. So when we talked about Gladiator, um, jokingly, we said we were fighting because we were so far apart in our, in our assessments of the movie. And I, I genuinely do think that you were a little bit too harsh at Gladiator. Nope. I, in this Gladiator, sphere, I, I stand by. This, I think, is a well-made and well-acted movie. Gladiator, I think is shit, and I think it is made. I think it is a shit movie <laughs> with shit acting. Well, in the case of this movie here, my number is significantly higher than Sarah's, and I. But for people listening, I have no issues with Sarah's assessment of this movie whatsoever. In fact, I totally understand everything that she just said to me. Makes perfect sense. What I would say about the movie is that I am not ignoring the misogyny and I'm not ignoring the clearly racist undertones in it. I'm just looking at it in terms of a movie that I sat down in 2006 when I was 25 years old and I had no concept of what it was going to be and I sat down and threw on the the DVD and I had a massive smile on my face the whole way through. I've watched it Even during the scene when they were cutting out that guy's heart? I'm loving it. I mean, it might have been like a smile that looked like, <laughs> and I just made a face for Sarah. It would have looked like that, but like, and then I watched this again this morning, just before we recorded. And it's the, I'm trying to watch the movies closer to when we record episodes so that I'm, I have them fresh in my mind. And I watched this like literally two hours before we watched this. And I still had a cracking time with this film. And as a movie, which is an action movie, so I'm going to, personally remove all of the politics from it and i'm going to and i get it that i'm making a conscious choice to do that right so i am choosing to ignore the more problematic and i'm not saying that they're not there i'm saying that i am actively ollie brady is actively choosing to ignore them from this movie when i'm giving the rating from it i think as a movie from start to finish it does everything that it's trying to do and it is just a wild ride action movie. It's managed to establish relationships between the good characters. It's managed to establish who the bad characters are, what the bad characters' motivations are. Some of them are assholes, some of them are not. It manages to set up the family dynamic and why he wants to get back. That motivation is poor and weak and bad, but it is established and set up in the movie. And from a storytelling point of view, it makes perfect sense. Mm -hmm. And I think the action scenes are genuinely incredible like if there's one thing i can say about mel gibson is that when he does an action scene he knows exactly what he's doing and he sets it up properly yeah like it's probably from 
making three movies with George Miller back in when he was a young man. They probably mm-hmm. and and then with Richard Donner probably set him up to actually be able to do those sorts of scenes himself. Even in other movies he's done, the action scenes are are also excellently well done. Um, so I love this movie. I genuinely do, and all of the problems that have come with it, and I can see every single argument that Sarah's made. And I really want to say it's a five out of five, but I'm not because I have to untable that stuff that I tabled and pushed over to the side. As a movie, I it's such a good watch. And if you've never seen it, I genuinely think you should. And if you watch it with the point of view of both myself and Sarah, you'll see, I, I guarantee you, you can see both of them. You can absolutely mm-hmm. see the same movie and pick up both of our takeaways from this year. I'm going yeah. to give it a four out of five um i think as an action movie it's incredible it's just a shame that it's got such dodgy politics behind it yeah but i will i will as say as a movie it is a genuinely fantastic watch and i will say you know i the brutality and the <coughs> low key misogyny is still not totally for me but I will even say, like, I bet I would have given it a higher score if I'd somehow ended up with, like, a cut that <laughs> ditched the Spanish ships and just had them, like, yeah. walking off into the woods on their own and ditched that quote at the beginning. Yeah. I, like, it, that, it, that's, what, that's what leaves a lot of the, the bad taste in it. One thing I will say that's really interesting about it, there's no English in this movie whatsoever because there obviously no. was no English best time. And it's genuinely refreshing to watch an action movie which has subtitles and the subtitles make they work like they're not distracting and right again and i'm not just saying this for american listeners there is a stereotyping thing of subtitles making movies difficult to read and people don't want to do it it's why foreign language films have a tendency not to do particularly well in certain markets when you're watching them or when they're they're being released but I think they absolutely add to this because it allows the the people who are acting in a language that none of us have any hope of being able to understand to fully commit. And then the language that pops up on the screen is so commonplace and simple English that these guys are like shouting at each other or having their little soft father-son moments and like talking to each other. And yet it really allows them to act like properly like and it's so interesting to me to see a movie where it's got a big hollywood budget like this was this is this follow-up movie to one of the biggest international hits that had ever existed at the time like whatever length amount of money he spent on passion of the christ to make it it made 40 times its budget like so he made a ton of money so people love um, watching in the parlance of yeah, <laughs> they do in in a movie like in, in the parlance of um uh a podcast that we both listen to there uh this was his like this is his blank check this is yeah. the movie he got yeah. to make well and he took all of that budget and you see it on the screen yeah. Like, there isn't a part of this movie, as you said, it, it looks gorgeous. It looks gorgeous. Yeah. And they might not be accurate, but they've managed to make things that look tactile and real. So, yeah, I, again, totally, 100% see all of the issues that Sarah has with it. That's why I'm taking off that one star. Um, But as an action movie and as an entertaining watch, I, I this is superior filmmaking. And I would genuinely say, of all of the movies we've covered for the podcast 
this is for me this is top tier for sit down on a sunday and you've got two hours to kill i would i would recommend this over almost any of the other movies we've done I probably would not quite say that, but I can Better than Lion say... in Winter, I'll tell you that. Oh, God, no. Oh, watch <laughs> Lion in Winter every time. Oh, that snappy dialogue. Um, yeah, I I don't think I would necessarily rewatch this, but, you know, if you, like, want to watch an action movie, you know, of this type, right, it is, it is interesting. And if you, if you tend to like, if you tend to, you know, share all these kind of tastes, right. And the things that, you know, you might be interested in, in terms of that sort of action movie, you will very possibly enjoy this. Even if you're also aware of the racism. (laughs) Which by the way, I have publicly said I'm against them. I haven't heard you mention that at all. Uh, As for where you can find me on the internet, uh, nowhere. Um, I do not exist uh, but if you ever want to listen to podcast I do one called Judging Book Covers where we are just about to cover so uh, by the time this comes out we the, the episode from November will have released where we talked about uh, Mia, Mia P. Manus Allen book called uh, Murder in Maman which is a cosy mystery where uh, basically Oh, listen, you need to listen to the episode. I, I, spoiling that book would be would be a, a crime. Um, and next month, I have somehow been signed up to talk about the Fourth Wing, uh, the romance fantasy, romanticy, I believe they call it, which um, what I've been led to believe is like a, just like a sex fantasy uh, novel. And... Um, Definitely not my thing, but we're going to talk about it. so judging book covers, uh, where myself, Megan Griffin, and Stephanie Cortez. I, I de- Megan has definitely been on uh, this podcast. Megan um, has been Stephanie on is. this podcast and is actually going to be on the next episode of this podcast. Uh, she is going to be joining me for uh, Media Evil's Christmas episode, in which I have decided that because a uh, medieval curse prominently features in oh, no. the uh, film uh, A Christmas Prince 3 Royal Baby, <laughs> we will Sarah be covering that Decker. for the Christmas episode. So come and listen to so. Megan on that. Megan, I love Megan. I love Sarah, but my God, that is. It starts. It starts in the year in like the fifteenth century. The oh, yeah. opening, also, like the opening point. scene, I think. I'll have to, I mean, I have to rewatch be... it still. By, 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 Are we getting week. a Christmas Prince four? They've always like. I don't know. They've talked about it a couple of times. I would love to find out yeah. we did. Anyway, so um, yeah, that's where you can find me. Uh, judging book covers. Yeah. So if you have enjoyed this podcast, uh, first of all, please, of course, come back for our uh, very medieval Christmas episode on A Christmas Prince 3 Royal Baby. Uh, Please also subscribe in your preferred podcatcher app and rate and review. I'll read new five-star reviews in future episodes. Please also follow the podcast on X at Medieval Pod and join our Facebook group. Continued note, I find that particular social media platform increasingly unpleasant, um, but it takes time to 
set up new accounts and figure things out and get those things organized. And uh, I am not doing that currently because I'm teaching three classes and I'm very busy. So uh, this is, maybe next This semester. is Facebook you're talking about or X? X. So I'll keep the Facebook. Yeah. So I'll be keeping the Facebook group. Uh, I might be moving away from the Twitter slash X account gradually, but for now it is uh, it is what we got. What's the better alternative called? Blue something. There's blue sky and there's threads. And to be honest, I kind of don't understand what all of them. I kind of don't understand them all. I think there might be another one. I find it so confusing and so tiring. And I think I'm too old to have to like learn a new social media. Sarah, I can tell you for one thing, it's definitely not me who understands either of them. You will find me on the Facebook page because I've just about managed to learn how that works. (laughs) Yeah. You can also, I still have never posted on my own Facebook, I don't think. So, woo! You can also still find me on X, though I don't really post much except for podcast-related stuff. And you can find me on Instagram, where I have delightful pictures of my pets, of food I make, and occasionally of travel, at Sarah Ift Decker. If you have any questions or suggestions, I'd love to hear from you via email at media.evilpod at gmail.com. So, Ollie, thank you for uh, joining me for this episode. Um, it's a great movie, everybody. Um, yeah, it's Sarah. You know I love coming on, and I'm hundred percent certain we'll be back on. I need to talk to you about Ironclad, and we still need to do the um, the uh, Dungeons and Dragonsy type thing that we're going to yes. do. Yes, so we we'll get ready yes. to doing that at some stage. Yeah. All right, and thank you all for listening to Media Evil. Bye. Bye.